Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Tonight's program was produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, and Vanessa Bohm with special help from Kayla Mulholland. We'll be taking a listen to the radio documentary Deadly Divide, which explores the human cost of prevention through deterrence, a border enforcement strategy introduced during the Clinton administration produced by Hasmin Lopez and Brandon Thibodeau. We'll also get an update on the dire situation Mumia Abu-Jamal is facing currently. And finally, we interview Grammy winner and one of La Raza Chronicle's favorite musicians, Leela Downs. She will be performing at the Nurse Theater in San Francisco on April 22nd. All this and more, but first, Noticias Sin Fronteras with our own Vilma V. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending April 5th. Panama. On April 10th and 11th, the governments of North, Central, and South America will gather for the 7th Summit of the Americas in Panama City, Panama. The summit is principally organized by the Washington-based Organization of American States, OAS, and has been seen in the past as a symbol of U.S. domination of the region. This is changing, however, since this will be the first summit for new OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro. Almagro is the former foreign minister of Uruguay under progressive president José Mujica. His election to the post was widely seen as a turning point for the OAS. This will be the first time that the summit includes Cuba, which had been excluded from the gathering for over 50 years. Almagro said, quote, Together, we can give the OAS the credibility that everyone demands. Resolving the hostilities between the U.S. and Venezuela is expected to be one of the main issues at the summit. Venezuela. Last Sunday, it was announced that a petition launched in Venezuela opposing President Obama's executive order declaring Venezuela an extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States has received over 8 million signatures. The signatures will be handed in during the Summit of the Americas later this week in Panama. The U.S. Assistant Secretary of State, Roberta Jacobson, said she was, quote, disappointed by the level of support shown for Venezuela following Obama's March 9th executive order. Mexico. Last week, over 300 oil workers were evacuated and four were killed after a fire broke out at the Campeche Sound offshore oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico. The cause of the fire remains unknown and some workers are still missing. Pemex's Director of Exploration and Production said it would be difficult to quickly restore oil production because of the large number of pipelines which have been affected. It took eight firefighting boats to quell the blaze. This was the same area which suffered a devastating oil spill back in 1979 that at the time was one of the worst oil spills in history. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto promised a thorough investigation into the cause of the fire. Colombia Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos issued a statement yesterday rejecting the U.S.-imposed sanctions against Venezuela. In an interview with the Colombian newspaper El Tiempo, he said, quote, We always believed that the unilateral sanctions in the long term are counterproductive, 
Therefore, we reject them. Santos called on all the political parties in Venezuela to engage in dialogue. The U.S. sanctions on Venezuela have been widely condemned throughout Latin America and by international organizations such as the OAS, UNASUR, the Union of South American Organizations, CELAC, Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, among many others. Cuba. Fidel Castro, revolutionary leader and the former president of Cuba, made his first public appearance in over a year when he met a delegation of Venezuelan officials on a solidarity mission at a local school in Havana. Castro was photographed shaking hands with the Venezuelan visitors through a car window while wearing a baseball cap and a windbreaker. Castro stepped down from the presidency in 2008 and is rarely seen in public, though he continues to receive dignitaries at his home and occasionally writes a newspaper column. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have on the phone Noel Hanrahan, the longtime producer of Risen Radio that brings us the thoughts and voices of Mumia, Abu Jamal, and others. Hello, Noel Hanrahan. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Over the years, we've appreciated the many insightful and inspiring commentaries by Mumia Abu-Jamal that you've recorded and made available to us to share with our listeners. And we want to offer our thanks, our solidarity, and our support to Mumia, to you, to his family and friends who are trying to help and defend him through this difficult crisis. Can you please share with us the latest news about his condition, Noel? Mumia Abu-Jamal, like many elders in our prison system, is dealing with some issues, some systemic health issues that are really debilitating. So he had a very intense outbreak of eczema. And this isn't just like a small patch of scaly skin. This is something that covered his entire body. It had broken out into open wounds. He was on antibiotics. He was trying to deal with this organ crisis, like your skin's an organ. It was very difficult. He got a treatment that he had a reaction to that was very negative, where his whole body swelled up. So for the past three or four months, Mumia has been trying to get health care in prison system. Now, it's hard enough to get health care outside, but getting health care in prison is really difficult. So he was not given good care. He was not given appropriate diagnoses. And the treatment actually caused a spike in his blood sugar level, the onset of diabetes. Now, that wasn't treated. They noted it in his chart that he had elevated glucose levels, but he actually fell out and became unconscious in the prison. We're very lucky. Probably some prisoner pitched an enormous fit because you just don't get taken to the hospital in prison. That doesn't happen. 
for most people. So they put him in an ambulance and they took him to the hospital. And it was with a diabetic shock. 779 was his blood sugar level and 800 is a diabetic coma, which may or may not be reversible. What happened then was we had known that he was ill and we had been engaging his health care team. I had sent somebody to the prison that morning to get his health care releases signed for current records. When they got there, they were told by a guard, hey, I shouldn't be telling you this, but he just went out of here in an ambulance. So she went to the hospital, the biggest hospital in the, the area, Schuylkill Medical Center in Pottsville, PA. She got there, she went into the ICU, she went into the nurse's station, and she saw the armed guards and assumed that it was Mumia. We had been having a hearing that day, that morning, a trial on the silence Mumia law, the Pennsylvania law that got passed. That's unconstitutional. We sued in federal court. We were having our trial. We got a call as we got out of the trial that Mumia had been taken to the hospital. So whenever you get a call that a prisoner has been taken to the hospital, you know it's near death because they don't ever take anybody to the hospital. They, they really don't. So we rushed to the hospital. We were there very quickly. Johanna Fernandez was in the waiting room. She said, just wait downstairs. I'm going to get you into the emergency ICU unit. She comes downstairs. She comes to the curb. She flicks her cigarette to the side of the road. And then Pam Africa's with us and Keith Cook, Mumia's older brother. And Pam says, everybody with dreads, you stay here. We don't want to get connected to the hospital. We're going to get in there first. So Johanna says, come with us. Go through every door I take you through. Don't look sideways we're getting up to where he is so we went through this amazing maze of this hospital in Pottsville PA we get up to the ICU unit we open the door and a whole bunch of these doors say do not open we open the door we go to the nurse's station we can see Mumia's feet like 10 15 feet away and the nurses are right there and then there's these four really big beefy armed guards and the curtain is closed over his room and they tell us we can't confirm whether Mumia Abu-Jamal is here and we have his brother, and his brother says, this is my brother. I'm really concerned. We know he was taken here, and we know he's in intensive care. They don't. They refuse to tell us any information. But the vibe they're giving off is, we don't have this. It's not like, oh, wink, wink, your brother's fine. It's like, oh, no, this guy's in really serious trouble. So I turn to one of the charge nurses, and I say, well, I guess it's good that we're not hearing any, like, crash calls and crash cards. She's like, yeah, it's good that you're not hearing the crash cards. Those are the only words that were spoken to us about his condition then for 20 hours. So Pam Africa and I slept on the ICU floor because we were unwilling to leave that waiting room. Every medical personnel who came out of that ICU for that period of time, I chased down the hallway. And I said, hey, are you Mumia Abu-Jamal's doctor? Oh, maybe he goes under the name Wesley Cook. Are you, have you treated the guy with dreads in there who's not looking very good? So I chased every nurse. Chase every, you know, everybody's giving him vitals. Chase him down the hall. Most of them say no. This one guy, he ran. He was Mumia's doctor. <laughs> so I watched him for a while, but I lost. So then um, the next morning, we've initiated an action alert. We've been calling the Department of Corrections. His wife comes from Philadelphia. His wife shows up. They let his wife, based on pressure, no other reason, see him for half an hour, and they let his older brother, Keith, see him for half an hour. And they're devastated because he's he's conscious, but he's extraordinarily weak and very, very sick. He also came in with a really high blood count in terms of sugar. Came in with a sodium level of 168, which is lethal. So they got that down. He wasn't yet stabilized. And now we're talking to the Department of Corrections about what we can do to see him. So two one-and-a-half-hour visits within the first, like, 48 hours. And then they say, oh, we're only going to give relatives... A once-a-week visit. So you have to be an immediate family member, and you have to be on the visiting list. So they change the rules, like, every day, and we are initiating campaigns to get pressure 
sort of pressuring, 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 and it's very, 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 very difficult. So that's the that's the that's the beginning of the situation of how we are utilizing every resource we have to make sure that the prison gives mumia and all prisoners adequate care. These are systemic, chronic conditions that are treatable. They're not deadly. But the way that the prison deals with them, they become medical emergencies. What can listeners do to support Mumia and help him come back to health? You know, there are a couple things you can do. One is, if you call, even if you don't get through, if you call all the numbers that are being put out by people at www.freemumia.com, prisonradio.org, the campaign to bring Mumia home, if you call a bunch of those numbers, if you do the change.org petition, if you do the Roots Action petition, it matters. We saw direct results. Like, people complained that they couldn't get through or that people hung up on them. But let me tell you, it mattered. It meant that his family could see him. It meant that we had our eyes on him. It meant that we knew he wasn't in a coma. It meant that we could demand to see the kidney specialist, you know, who didn't know anything about diabetes. <laughs> but we, it meant that we could actually engage in making sure that Mumia had some level of care. Now, we're fighting like we are. We are committed to Mumia Abu-Jamal having the best care. So he had a care team in place. It's Terry Coopers and Corey Weinstein who are from the Bay Area. They were already in place. They're reviewing his medical records. They're talking to the doctors. We're advocating for the Department of Corrections to allow him to see a specialist because obviously they haven't been treating him correctly and diagnosing it right. Obviously they've let a chronic condition turn into a death sentence, a deadly sentence. We really appreciate all that you've been doing. Thank you so much, Noelle. Coming up next, the radio documentary Deadly Divide, a multimedia collaboration between radio producer Jasmine Lopez and photographer Brandon Thibodeau, with music by Diana Gameros exploring the human cost of prevention through deterrence, a border enforcement strategy introduced during the Clinton administration. I'm George Lavender, and this is Making Contact. Gentlemen, how are you all doing? Hey, ma'am, ma'am, let me know. The sheriff of Brooks County, Texas, has a serious problem. Almost every week, his office gets a call about another dead body in the remote ranch lands that make up much of the county. Most of the victims are found just with the clothes they were wearing, and no identification. I pronounce one of the Cage Ranch, where the brothers take the 19, 20-year-old, the 19 died, the 20-year-old stayed with him, and he stayed with him. You know, and then the, the coyote took you know, everything away from all kinds of identifications and he wouldn't be able to fit him and left him there with his brother. Wow. But he stayed with his brother, you know, just to know that you're going to get arrested. And Brooks County isn't unique. Bodies are found in other Texas counties along the Mexican border all the time. Over 6,000 migrant deaths were recorded on the U.S. side of the border with Mexico between 1998 and 2013. That's an average of more than one a day, every day for 15 years. The true number of deaths is probably much higher. Many people who try to make the crossing go missing and are never heard from again. That's Making Contact producer Jasmine Lopez. She says to understand why so many people are dying trying to reach the United States, we have to go back to the 1990s. 
That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards. Bill Clinton's presidency marked a major shift along the 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border. In 1994 and 1995, more than 1,000 extra agents were sent to the border to deter would-be migrants from crossing. Places along the border, which had once been easier for people to cross, suddenly became impassable. This approach was known as prevention through deterrence. Those who developed this new policy were well aware that the effect would be to force immigrants to cross in more remote parts of the border, in places like Brooks County. To find out what the human cost of prevention through deterrence has been, Jasmine traveled to the border to bring us this special documentary, Deadly Divide. Una ofrenda de amor para los caminantes, para los más valientes, para los desplazados, los sobrevivientes. Una vela encendida por el corazón de los migrantes, de todos los penitentes, los que como moscas van sobre los techos de los trenes, como carga, como mercancía, como algo disponible, desechable, vulnerable, la brasa inagotable, el torrente. So we're currently walking through the desert trying to um, find the body of a man whose wife called him in. And uh, it's really hot out here in the sand. I didn't think the sand was so soft. It's pretty difficult to walk through. A lot of brush around us, uh, a lot of branches with thorns. I'm good, thank you. If the body is found, Judge Raul Ramirez will pronounce the person dead. He's walking with a group of men. Deputy Elias Pompa, the Border Patrol Search, Trauma and Rescue Team, and Funeral Director Alonzo Rangel in the desert of Brooks County, Texas, a place where searches like this are all too common. We just came across the body that they've been looking for, and it took us um, quite a while to get out here. It's pretty hot. Um, I can't imagine even preparing for this um, and having to sit through this for days while hiding. The body is face down in high grass beneath a group of oak trees. He's shirtless and wears modern jeans with a purple canvas belt. His tennis shoes and socks are beside him. They're going to be taking some photos and after that uh, we're probably going to look at the clothing and then they're going to try to uh, get an ID. So he's carrying an ID with him. We know very little about him. We only know that he was with a group of 20 migrants that walk through Brooks County. He, along with his wife and another man, were separated from the group. When he died, she kept walking and was eventually detained by Border Patrol. She told them where to find his body. Okay. Rangel puts on his blue gloves and inspects the body before Ramirez pronounces him dead. The ID he was found with led us to believe he was 19, but we later found out it wasn't his. He wasn't 19, he was 20 and his name was Joel Mejia Santiso from Guatemala. We ready, Mr. Rosa? Yes, sir. Okay. Joel was pronounced dead at 1.41 p.m., two days after his death. He is the 48th body found and picked up by Brooks County Sheriffs in 2014. David Gomez. Gomez. Santis Diobi, November 13, 1983. I began to wonder about his life back home. 
where he had purchased those jeans, if he was proud to wear them. Perhaps he changed into them for what may have been the last leg of his journey. I wondered what conversations he and his wife may have had as they prepared to leave their home in Guatemala. Hi guys, don't be shy. It's estimated that hundreds of thousands of migrants attempt to cross the U.S. border each year. I'm quite a few feet behind uh, Border Patrol that's carrying the body. There are uh, seven guys carrying the body, and it's, I think it's pretty heavy and it's a really bad smell. So they have to keep switching positions. After what seems like half an hour, we make it back to the truck. The Border Patrol search trauma and rescue team discuss how they will transport the body out of the desert, on the hood or inside the truck. After some struggle, he's finally placed inside the truck that Rangel and I ride back to the meeting point, then the town of Falfurius. As we begin the drive out, we are still overwhelmed by the heat. And now that the body is in the truck with us, the smell. I ask Rangel about the difficulty of finding bodies in this desert. Start to think about it. How did the person even get out here in the first place? You know, it's, it's real easy to get turned around. You notice how we kind of walked this direction and I thought we were going that direction. And it just seemed like to me it would have been shorter just to walk out straight. That's just not the case. Migrants are often dropped off by smugglers, 13 miles south of Falfurius, to avoid a border patrol checkpoint. Sometimes without warning, they're told to walk around the checkpoint for several days until they pass it and reach a pickup point. People have no idea what these poor, you know, souls are doing out here. You know, and what they're actually encountering. Look at all the land around you and there's there's no landmarks. You can't see anything. Except more trees, you know. So there's no way you can direct yourself towards something. That's the reason they they wind up getting lost. The uh, the people are starting to move further and further away from regular roads, and that's where they wind up out here. And we've had cases where we found you know women, and, you know that had children's clothing with them, and you wonder if they even had a child with them. Yeah. And that's difficult. I've been out there when there's a a father and, and his son passed away trying to find a better life and didn't, did not find it. So yeah, there's a lot of sadness out here. I'm Elias, I'm 21 years old and come from Honduras. For reasons that will become obvious later, we will only use Elias's first name. Life in Honduras was a hustle on the street, ruined by drugs. Like many who choose to make the dangerous crossing to the United States, 
Elias says he left Honduras because of the violence there. Honduras has the world's highest murder rate. Last year, 7,000 people were murdered. That's 19 per day. Gangs are a part of life. You either join or you die. He tells me his grandmother could no longer cope with him, and his life was at risk. Me sentí triste, llorando. Le dije a mi abuela de Corinto, mamá. I felt sad. I went to my grandmother in tears. Mama, you know what? I'm not going to Belize. Where are you going? She asked. I'm going to the United States. You're crazy. Go to Belize with your uncle. Nope, I'm not going to Belize. I'm going to the United States. She told me, I hope it goes well, son. I forgive you for everything you've done to me. Above all, I love you. Be careful on that road and call us. Brooks County can't afford its own medical examiner. So when bodies like Joel's are found, they're sent 90 miles away to Webb County for an autopsy. This is where Joel was found to have died of hyperthermia from exposure to heat. Next, they're brought here to Texas State University in San Marcos to be processed. You guys got a lot done today. We did? We did. Yeah. This is almost a full skeleton. If you can see under here, these are some of the border crossers that are waiting to be processed. Um, so we have somewhere around 40 maybe 45, out at the facility waiting to be finished decomposing. And then in this room, there's about six of them waiting to be processed. That's Haley Decker, the laboratory manager. Cool. She tells me that processing entails cleaning and boiling the bones until the tissue is completely removed. So we're just working to help and give that bi biological profile to help identify them. Um, so we don't know too much about this individual um, in terms of a backstory or where they were found. Um, we're just working on our end to give a full profile, biological profile of what we have. This team is piecing together scraps of information that these bodies carry with them. Hair, clothing, jewelry, anything that they could match to missing persons reports. There's also another team that works to process and identify the found bodies that have already decomposed or that have been exhumed. When I look at this individual, I believe we have a female and I'd spend quite a bit of time making a good determination of the age and giving a good age range, but I would say that she was um, somewhere in her 20s and at the very latest, very early 30s. Dr. Lori Baker is associate professor of anthropology at Baylor University. She examines the remains of a woman found in Brooks County. She says bones can tell you a lot about an individual's life and death. And she did a lot of um, heavy work. We can see that by looking at the development of her muscle attachments and the changes we see to the bone because of that type of work. We can also see it when we look at 
uh, the clavicle. Baker and her students began exhuming the remains of unidentified individuals buried in unmarked graves in a cemetery in Falfurrias in 2013. Most of the remains she examines are young, but small children are rarely found. Baker believes this is because their bones are often broken or carried away by animals and are difficult to find. I can see some signs of malnutrition, so this, this porous area of the bone. Um, and so if you look here, you can see that she still retains her, her lacrimal bones, um, so she didn't have extensive vulture scavenging. I don't see any cracking of the ribs. For Baker, this project is supposed to help those families waiting to hear from their loved ones, to let them know one way or another what happens. But that's not always possible. We leave Baker's lab for her office. It's a small room with a desk, three chairs, a wall of books, and another with a poster advocating for immigrant rights. I ask her what it's like to do this work. They don't have the resources, the educational background, or any training to be able to do that. And so when I think about these families suffering, I think about how my family would deal with this situation and how unprepared and unequipped they are. And um, it just devastates me that there'll be so many families that never receive any sort of information. Baker established the Reuniting Families Project in 2003. Along with her husband, Eric Baker, she assisted in the establishment of Mexico's Missing Nationals Abroad database. Now, she's working more with Central American countries. So when I started doing the project, I, I really wasn't sure I wanted to continue to do it. I thought our first identification was a woman that was my age at the time. She had two young daughters, and I, I think I probably cried as much as her daughters did when they heard the news because it just devastated me to think they would never see their mom again and her whole purpose of coming to the U.S. was to be able to support them. She couldn't support them staying in Mexico and um, it, it just seemed like I was giving bad information to a family that might rather have the hope that she would come back and her mother was was I will never forget her. She said, uh, now I have a place to go and pray. And she was so thankful. Baker has been doing this work for over a decade and has noticed shifts in the reasons behind migration. When I started doing this work, people came here for economic reasons. And we could have easily fixed that in our immigration system with a guest worker program. Now people come here because they're refugees. We have people fleeing violence and conflict and they are being threatened. They have family members and friends that are being killed. They have no other chance. You're listening to the Making Contact documentary, Deadly Divide. To learn more about Dr. Lori Baker's work, visit radioproject.org. That's also where you can find work produced along the U.S.-Mexico border in collaboration with photojournalist Brandon Thibodeau. We'll be right back. When Elias first left Honduras, he took a bus to the Guatemala-Mexico border. From there, he walked for 18 hours to Tenosique, Mexico, where he joined dozens of migrants on a similar journey. Vowing to look out for each other, they hopped on a northbound freight train known as La Bestia, 
or the beast, at 2 a.m., often singing and chanting to keep their spirits up. Their destination is the border town of Reynosa, Tamaulipas, 60 miles south of Brooks County, Texas. It was when they reached the town of Tierra Blanca that the dangers began. Elias nearly turned back, twice. I stayed calm. They started asking for money and wanted to know if we had family in the United States. One of the guys was fed up and said, How much do I have to pay you all, you sons of Okay, you asked for it, they told him. Right on the tracks, in front of the station. One shot in the head for each of the guys. They just dumped them in the tunnels. His story isn't unique. Kidnappings, extortion, and murder are common for migrants traveling through Mexico. It hurts when a comrade is killed, especially when he's good and doesn't bother anyone. Sometimes the American dream turns into a tragedy. By the time he reached the U.S.-Mexico border, Elias had already traveled over 1,500 miles. Many migrants don't make it this far. Like thousands of others in Reynosa, he waits for a chance to cross, with all the dangers of the desert ahead. For migrants trying to cross through the South Texas desert, there are many dangers. Walking through the sand is exhausting, and possibly treacherous, too. Rattlesnakes and scorpions hide beneath the surface. But the biggest killers out here are heat and thirst. Right up here is where I ran into a couple of people from El Salvador one time. And I got given in a circle to check on the stations, and they had been lost for three days. It's going around and going around, going around, and, and, and I said, I said, well, have you jumped the fence? And he said, no. I said, well, you're in the same ranch. You know, you've been going around in circles. And I gave him all the water and the food that I had. And then it dawned on me that, you know, because they've been gone for two or three days already. And I said, well, maybe they wanted to be rescued. So I came back, talked to them. They wanted to be rescued. They wanted to turn themselves in. They were desperate already. Eduardo Canales drives his truck out to this desert several times a week. He places several gallons filled with water into a large blue bin. He maintains more than two dozen water stations in the desert, like this one. It looks simple enough, just a blue barrel about three feet high, marked in white with the Spanish word for water, agua. It doesn't seem like much, but Canales says it can save a life. Eddie, what are we doing? What we're doing is we're resupplying this water, water station right here. Uh, this one is, is is used on a regular basis, and you can tell that the uh, the flagpole is bending on me. So I may want to, uh, at some point, bring it down, but it's uh, been very, um, this one's been used a lot. So um, over the last, we got, some, uh, we got six in here. Uh, 
somebody left one behind, see? They were carrying this one, and they replaced it and left this one. I appreciate the fact that they throw it in here because I, I, can, I like to leave the area cleaner than when I started off with. See, they, they use this one each. They fill that one with their one, because they have it tied up. So usually, usually I keep a dozen to the 18. So uh, over the last, he picked up water here. I gave him water about four or five days ago. So it's, it, the water's being used, you know. Let me um, put some more in here. Canales is the director of the South Texas Human Rights Center and a self-described seasoned organizer. He came out of retirement to meet what he says is a dire need for migrants in Brooks County, water. How often are you replacing these? Uh, well, the flag seems to be, uh, you know, whatever it takes to replace the flag. So uh, the water we, once a week. All right, let's go back up. We'll go check that other one over here. Yep. Or back up and, and then um, go put that other one up. You know what these ladders are for, right? For people to, to, to uh, climb over and they don't break the fence, they don't have to cut the fence or anything. They're all up, up and down. That's what the, you know, their ranchers are, do that so that people don't destroy their fence. Not all the local ranchers support what he's doing. He says some have fought or declined his water stations, but others see the value in his effort. Migrants that cross through South Texas often wait at the border in Reynosa, Tamaulipas. But the Mexican state has been plagued by drug violence for over a decade. Cartel gun battles and vehicle blockades happen nearly every day. Kidnapping and extortion are big business. It's here that the U.S. deports people when they are released from detention, often without money or a way to get home. I walk over the bridge from Hidalgo, Texas, to Reynosa. I cross the bridge with 20 deportees. One young man calls someone to let them know he's been deported. He says he's filthy and without a penny. With all the news of the bombings and shootings in Reynosa, I'm more than a little guarded when I cross the border to visit. I wonder if those that walk beside me are as nervous as I am. Overlooking the Rio Grande in Hidalgo, Texas, is one of a few migrant houses in Reynosa. This is where I find Elias. He is one of 9,000 migrants that have found refuge here this year. Unsure of who he could trust, he scans the courtyard for others that could hear our conversation. He wears a red soccer jersey, shorts, and a pair of sandals. He tells me that he's waiting until he can pay $100 to cross the Rio Grande, the first obstacle he'll face before walking through the desert. Lookouts are posted along its banks to ensure that no one crosses without paying the gangs. The most difficult road remains. It was difficult to the south because of the deaths and kidnappings and everything else. The worst remains. They've told me, it's tough getting out of here. But when it's God's will, everything is possible. Elias's father attempted to make the same crossing, 
but never made it out of Tamaulipas. Elias was 18 when he left. My dad, a long story that I really don't like to tell, but he was an alcoholic, drug addict, wasting on the street. He came undocumented to the United States. He stayed here in Mexico for some time before deciding to cross to the United States. Elias's father was one of 72 migrants that were massacred by Los Zetas drug cartel in 2010. He can't help but contemplate the fact that he's in the same place where his father died. The weight weighs heavily on him. I'm a little afflicted because I can't leave, but everything is in time. I've got to see how things are on the outside. They're bad. I can't leave just yet. I want to stay here a little while so that I know which way the current is running, like we did in Honduras. I want to familiarize myself with the way things work here, the crossing. When I asked him of his plan, he wasn't sure what he would do. He didn't know about the dangers in the desert the distances between towns, or the checkpoint in Falfurias. He didn't own a pair of boots, a map, or a compass. But what he left behind him, the violence he was fleeing, and the faith he carries, keep him motivated. As Elias tells me this, I'm reminded of Joel, the young man whose remains we found in Brooks County. Elias is only a year older and plans to walk through the same desert, but unguided. Later, I tell him about Joel, his wife, and all that I learned in Brooks County. But when we spoke, he seemed set on crossing. Returning to Honduras wasn't an option. Yes, I'm going to continue. I'm a few steps from the U.S. Turning back to Honduras? No way, I can't. I want to help my grandmother and keep my promise with God. I have a promise and I'm going to keep it. If I don't keep it, it was God's will. If I do, it was also God's will. I go with faith in God's grace. I know I'll get there. It's now midday and over 100 degrees. Some of the children play outdoors. Elias and the rest of the adults head inside to get away from the heat. His wait to cross the border continues. And that's it for this special edition of Making Contact. Check out our website, radioproject.org, to get our podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. That's also where you can see photos from Brooks County. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Quan Booth, Andrew Stelzer, Laura Flynn, Brandon Thibodeau, Mitra Caboli, and Jasmine Lopez. I'm George Lavender. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. You were listening to the radio documentary Deadly Divide, a multimedia collaboration between radio producer Jasmine Lopez and photographer Brandon Thibodeau, with music by Diana Gameros, exploring the human cost of prevention through deterrence, 
a border enforcement strategy introduced during the Clinton administration. Since the airing of the documentary, Elias had attempted to cross the U.S.-Mexico border and was apprehended by the Border Patrol. He was detained for two weeks, then released in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, murder capital of the world. Ofrenda a Coming up next, an interview with musical powerhouse Leela Downs. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Today, we are honored to have on the line with us Leela Downs. She is one of the most important voices of our time. She has brought to us some Mexican classic music and has done it in an incredible new way. And she is going to be in town. It's something that we really recommend people move fast and get their tickets because her shows do sell out here. So thank you so much, Leela, for joining us. Thank you. Lila, why don't we start with a song from your latest CD, because people are so excited about your new music. So why don't you choose a song that we can feature now and give people a taste of some of the different places you're going and taking us on this CD? Yes. I start out, I think, composing some of these songs to the Day of the Dead in a way because I felt that it was the time to do it to honor our ancestors and to honor my uh, father, my grandmother, whom I always put an altar for with my mother, and we make a mole, and we offer the warm chocolate, and and then we, we burn incense, we burn copal, so that the smoke can lead the way for the ancestors to come and partake in this meal with us. And it's uh, such a beautiful ritual that I have always considered quite important. But at this point, since there has been so much death around us, I think that it's a little bit subconscious, the need to bring it out. And also, personally, my husband had a very uh, awful um, diagnosis with the doctor who told us that he had very little time left. So it's combined, you know, and I think the music expresses those concerns. But uh, curiously, it's like we are in Mexico. It's a homage to the dead, but in a very happy way, I believe. That is the voice of Lila Downs talking to us about her latest CD, Balas y Chocolate, and she will be at the Nerus Theater in just a few weeks, so people will get to hear some of this beautiful, very powerful music. Speaking of powerful songs, you just came out with an incredible video for La Patria Madrina. Since it's hard to show, have people understand the video, we're going to play the song. Hoy me levanté con el ojo pegado Ya miré el infierno, ya miré las noticias Fosas, muertos, daño a madre naturaleza Ambición, poder Y a mí me agarró la depresión Todos quieren tajo del petróleo triste Y a quemar la madre tierra con urgencia Hacer más carros para gastar más dinero Como si pudieras comprarte la felicidad Y todo amaneció mejor, mejor Y todo amaneció mejor, mejor Y todo amaneció mejor 
levanté y mis ojos se aclararon Hoy planté una milpa en una llanta vieja de mi barrio Aunque todo, todo se caiga alrededor Yo te veo al centro como un cañón Esta medicina se toma cuchara people a little bit about what you did with this very powerful song. Thank you. It reflects a little bit the way that we all kind of feel, I think, in Latin America. We, uh, you know, you wake up and you, you put on the news or you, you put on your computer, you listen to the news somehow, and it becomes a little bit dark and depressing because you, you're hoping that the next day is a little bit brighter than the last. But unfortunately, things seem to be getting, you know, worse and worse in a way. And so the chorus in the, in the song says, uh, everything is better today. Everything is going to be better today. And I'm really hopeful. It's kind of uh, said in, in a mantra, because I do believe that if we have good faith towards our country, towards the things that we do, each of, each of us in our path, we can turn things around and at least make the decisions that we need to make if we have some sort of catharsis through art. And that song really does leave people with esperanza, which is what we all really need at this moment. So what else from this latest Balas y Chocolate CD do you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I guess uh, I would like to highlight Umito de Copal, which is a song that I wrote, also dedicating it to the people in the press. I'm kind of uh, a little bit confused as to why and how this is happening, but I know that instinctually it feels completely right to compose something about searching for the truth. And uh, it's also about the smoke in the incense burner and, and the path to the altar. The record is a bit 
about ritual, but it's also about the enjoyment of life and the things that we're going through, which is kind of fear of uh, loss of your loved ones. I think it's a combination of all these elements. And that's off of the CD, Balas y Chocolate. And Lila Downs will be coming to town and will be in San Francisco. And folks can check her out there. And if you are not in the area and would still like to see her, she's doing her whole tour. And you can find out more at liladowns.com. Muchísimas gracias, Lila. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our Bay Area audience? Muchas gracias. Well, we're hoping to come and, and, uh, and perform for you all and enjoy Hopefully you can feel through our music. That is my major concern. And I think that music gives us such a gift of uh, release and to, to find our emotions. Muchísimas gracias, Lila. We look forward to seeing you on stage and sharing your powerful voice and lyrics with us. Thank you so much. Sintonizando con el mundo de los vivos desde Radio Miclán. Dedicada a todas las compañeras y hermanos periodistas en la línea del juego. Estoy tan decepcionada y es que no te creo más. Ya me lo prometiste, yo quiero la verdad. Llevan tus palabras, palabras con alas, mensajes de viento que mueve montañas. Llevan tus palabras, palabras con alas, tus pensamientos que mueve montañas. Soy la mujer que por su vida peleó Soy la estudiante que cambia las reglas Soy la normalista que se manifiesta Soy chatina, soy mazateca Soy el testimonio de la naturaleza Digo la palabra que llora la tierra Palabras que me desencadenan Estoy tan decepcionada y es que no te creo más Si ya me lo prometiste yo quiero la verdad Llevan tus palabras, palabras con alas, mensajes de viento que mueve montañas. Llevan tus palabras, palabras. 
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, community-powered radio on KPFA 94.1 FM. If you would like to listen to this program again or share it with others, go to kpfa.org or search for us, La Raza Chronicles, on SoundCloud. Make sure to like us on Facebook for regular updates on news, arts, culture, music, and more desde el mundo latino. We would love your feedback on the show and to hear any ideas for future episodes. Please email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. That does it for us this evening. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Buenas noches. Hasta la próxima. <laughs>